We're going to read in the book of Titus this morning, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want to speak to you confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and a second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinful and being self-condemned. And pray with me. Father God, I just ask that as we come before you now in this time of study, that we would set aside our own plans, our own thoughts, and humbly just bow our heads before you, open our ears and our heart to hear your good word. Father, be with Pastor Rick as he delivers this message to us through your uh, ever-changing truth. Father, just how good you are to us in your truths and your promises. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so it is good to, uh, to be here this morning, and as was mentioned a little earlier, we had uh, an addition to the uh, G household, little Eve came into the world eight days ago, and it's been, uh, I would say, pretty smooth and pretty good. I, God has been particularly kind and generous and, and merciful uh, in, in bringing this new little something into what is already madness, foolishness, and mayhem uh, into, into our house. But it, it's been a, a really good thing. Um, personally, I don't think I could ever get used to what happens in the delivery room, I, I don't wish this on Jamie, but if we were to have a hundred more babies, I don't think I would ever stop marveling at that moment. It's not just that this brand new human life enters the world. What, what astonished me is the mom, right? And it's not just that this baby literally came out through like like that's like wow like what in the world is that all about it's not just that it's that the very next millisecond of a moment she has forgotten everything that just happened she's smiling and hugging the baby and and i mean that to me is what causes me to marvel most like if i go for a three mile jog i need like an advil course an ice pack a gatorade and a nap you know, and then she, Jamie, she's smiling. All of a sudden, it's like, when did you put makeup on? Like, it's like she's glowing, and it's, it's just a wonderful thing. So we are, we're very grateful for this new addition to the house, uh, to the family. God, like I said, has been very, very generous to us in, in multiple ways. You know, children are a blessing and, and all of that. Uh, also grateful for our church family that uh, there are folks that have been, had the opportunity to bring over a meal or to, or have signed up, for instance, to bring a meal, and it's very helpful. It really is a good deed, because you know, if you've ever had little ones, how chaotic and, and transitioning to an extra one, so it's really good, so, so thankful to be part of a church where we take care of one another, and that's what church is supposed to do, right? It's family, where we help one another get through stuff. Now, as we were coming 
into August, you know, I knew ahead of time there's a baby coming. Didn't know exactly when that would be. So I had asked several people, like four weeks in a row, for people to kind of step in and to man the pulpit because we didn't know when the baby would come and also trying to provide a little bit of a buffer so that I could have a week or two at least where I could be a little extra help at home, help Jamie fully recover, get adjusted and all that good stuff. And so that's why last week Ron Tudor from Explore Church came. He stood here. He presented God's word. That was a good deed. That was a blessing to me, hopefully to you guys. I know it was a blessing to the church to be able to stand here and just preach God's word. So that's a good thing. I had scheduled someone for today, uh, a good friend of mine, but I got this text from them yesterday morning. Call me when you can. And I knew in that moment, oh, this is bad. This is bad. And I almost didn't call because then, then you know, we, I, what was about to happen wouldn't happen, maybe. So I called, and he sounded awful, um, pinched nerve in his neck, having to go to the emergency room. He's in so much pain, can't drive, can't sleep, can't do anything. So he's like, Rick, I'm so sorry, but I can't make it tomorrow. So I say that to say that I'm standing up here with less than 24 hours notice. So Every time I preach, I always feel this incredible need to be very much in prayer and asking for God's help. I would say especially so this morning, not just for me, but especially for you guys. So join with me. Let's pray and we'll uh, get into this. Uh, Lord, Father, we give you praise this morning. And Lord, I don't step up here trivially, Lord. I, I don't take this lightly. Uh, to stand before you and, and before your people and to present your word, Lord, it's, it matters. It's a, it's a reverent task. And Lord, I could spend eternity preparing a message and it would still be above me and beyond me, Lord. I'm so unworthy to, to be bestowed or appointed to do this, Lord. And I know it's not because of anything in me or of me. It is not, Lord, any strength or skill that I possess, Lord. It is only by you, Lord. It is by your appointment that I stand here this morning to just simply speak your truth, Lord. And, and we confess that, that your word is, in fact, your truth. And, Lord, we, we acknowledge that the very space, the time that we occupy belongs to you, Lord, and what's about to be preached is your truth, Lord willing, and, and that uh, what's about to be heard would be your truth, Lord. So my prayer this morning is that you would just guard me, guard my tongue, Lord, that what would proceed from my lips would be the very thing that would proceed from your heart, Lord. And I ask and I pray and I beg and I plead that we would walk out of here changed, transformed ever closer to you, living for your glory, Lord, living the life that you have called us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so imagine someone walks up to you, and they say, I've got a sure bet. I've got a sure thing. If you invest in this company, you will make a return on your investment. And not just a little return, you will in fact make bank. We're talking about a tremendous amount of return on your investment. So the question is, what do you do? What would you do? Well, I know what I would do. Where do I sign? Where, like, who do I make the check out to? Right? Because the, the truth is that we all enjoy a return on our investment. 
We all want our money to work for us, right? We all want for whatever that we invest in to yield a return, to be fruitful, to do something good and beneficial for us, right? So whether it is saving up for retirement, whether it's saving up for children's education, whether it's to pay off debt, pay off a house, whether it's even for vacation, we want for our investment vehicles to yield something good, something profitable, right? Uh, I would say it was about 15 years ago. So I'm single. I was in pharmaceutical medical sales. I was making what I would consider, especially at the time, a pretty nice wage. And I wanted to start investing on my own. So I opened up an online E-Trade account. And, and I get on there. And the thing is, I have a business degree from the University of Chapel Hill, Keenan Flagler School of Business. So I, I kind of know what, I, what I'm doing. Like, I'm not just some novice. And my first job at a school when I graduated college was as a stockbroker. I was licensed for a while to sell stocks and bonds and mutual funds. I was, like, rolling over IRAs and, and 401Ks for companies. So it's not like I was w went into this not knowing what I was doing. And I started doing research in the companies, doing all the metrics, the analytics, looking at P.E. ratios, and if you're into that, right? Like, I was doing that kind of stuff. I was reading analyst reports. There's nothing more fun than reading a financial analyst report over a company. I'm joking. Like, it's awful. It's dreadful. So, but I'm reading the stuff, and I'm doing market share research, demographics research, uh, looking into the industry, the competitors, and I'm doing all this homework. And I found four companies that I thought were just legit, really good, kind of up-and-coming companies to invest my money in. And so I took a few thousand, several thousand dollars. For some people, a tremendous amount. For some people, not much. But for me at the time, it was enough to like, make me a little panicky. But I, like, I did it. And so I, I invested in these companies. And let me tell you how this went. One of them instantly went down by 50% and never recouped, ever. Number two went down by 75% and never recouped ever. And the other two went to the squadouche. The other two went literally to zero. One, because they were doing illegal activities and got caught by the government. And the other one just went bankrupt. So, so here was, was this money that I invested. And I put all this research and time into it. And it went, I mean, I lost thousands of dollars. And again, it wasn't like bad investment. I wasn't like investing in this fine Bigfoot. Like I wasn't investing in a company that was trying to relaunch rotary phones into the marketplace. I wasn't investing in North Carolina State Athletics. Like I would never do that because who would do that, right? It's just, it just doesn't go well. So why would you, you know, it was really good, really good stuff that I was investing in and it all went to the big old squaddish. Not fun. Not good. Well, I learned a couple lessons. One, Rick, just don't invest. That's not your gift. And number two, God clearly doesn't want me to be independently wealthy, which is fine. But my question is, how many of you would like to have a loss? No one. No one wants to lose, right? We want to gain. We want to see a return on what we do, a return on our investment. We want to see profitability in everything that we do, including financial investments. And just like it's clear, I believe it's God's will for me never to be financially wealthy uh, or anything. What I do know is that it is God's will for me to be spiritually rich. And I know that that's true for everyone that is in this room. That God desires that we would all be spiritually profitable. 
And what God's word teaches us is that the way to spiritual profitability is through a life of good deeds. Good deeds lead to spiritual profitability. And that's what we're getting into today. So if you haven't done so, please open up your Bible to the book of Titus. There toward the end of the the New Testament. Um, We're going to be in in Titus chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. If you don't own one, if you can find one of these near you, that's our gift to you because we want everyone to have a copy of God's word for themselves. So again, we're in Titus chapter 3, and we're continuing on in a series entitled Good Deeds. And what we're doing is that we're walking our way through the book of Titus, learning, studying, discovering what it means to live a life of good deeds. And and I do hope that our definition of what we consider to be a good deed has been challenged in this series. And not only that, but that we've been convicted to live a life of good deeds. So not just that our definition of what a good deed is be in line with what Scripture says, but that we begin to actually live it out and flesh it out in our lives. And so what I want us to see in, in Titus chapter 3 is, in fact, that a life of good deeds is profitable. So if you're someone here this morning that wants a return on investment, you're in the right place. You don't have to settle for loss. You don't have to settle for a, a life of loss. We can actually enjoy wealth. And I'm not talking about the wealth that this world has to offer. I'm talking about the good stuff, the strength of God, the presence of God, the power of God, God's spirit in our life, joy, peace, goodness, wisdom, godly wisdom in our life, the very love of God and the grace of God in our lives. That is way, those are riches way beyond anything that this world has to offer. And the way to actually experience and to have more of, more of that in this life and in the life to come is by dedicating, devoting ourselves, engaging in a life of good deeds. So that's what we're getting into. So let's just start off by reading verse 8. Verse 8, Titus chapter 3, verse 8 says, This is a trustworthy statement. Let me stop there real quick. The Apostle Paul is writing, he's writing this, it's a letter to Titus, and here he says, this is a trustworthy statement, and he's referring to the few three or four verses just prior to this where Paul has explained and defined what the gospel is, what, what the work of Jesus and the love and the mercy of God are. So he's, the gospel is trustworthy, like the statement about the good news of Jesus is a trustworthy statement. So Paul's saying, hey, hey, Titus, trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. I want you to speak confidently. The, the, what that's getting to is to a sense of urgency. Speak boldly with urgency. Speak into stuff. Speak the gospel Paul's point to Timothy, to Titus, excuse me, is that his good deed is to speak the good news. To speak it with confidence and with boldness, the truth with grace, adamantly, intentionally, with urgency. And it's the same for us. We are to speak the gospel with confidence, proclaim it, declare it, announce it, herald it. Speak it. Speak it. Uh, what, what this is getting into is a, an opportunity for us, or a privilege, I would say, for us to step into 
the lives of others. To step into another world, someone else's world, to step into potential chaotic, messy situations and speak love and grace into the life of a person who has no hope. Right? To tell them about the joy that's available in Christ because they're going through a season or a trial or maybe they've never accepted Christ. So we're to step into that and share boldly and confidently this wonderful news that we've experienced, this trustworthy statement. Speak it confidently. Our our small groups, I think most of them have already finished at our 18th. I know mine, mine has barely started it. It might take us two years to get through it at the pace that we go. But anyway, we, we just finished this Bible study curriculum called The Story. And talk about helping people to speak with confidence the truth of the gospel. It, it's a wonderful curriculum where you sit there and, and you study the at-large picture, the meta-narrative of the Bible, like this grand story that is the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. So starting to understand it better, not as just verses and instruction and commands and, and stuff like that, but as this big story. And then to see how our personal lives, our, our individual stories fit into the great grand story of God. And then as we do those things, as we really learn the story of God and how we fit in, to begin to share it, to speak it with confidence. And so that's what Paul is getting into, that there is no greater good deed that we can do but to speak boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share with others that which has been shared with us, right? If we benefited from grace, to then take that to the people who need to do it and to tell that story with other folks. I mean, that's our mission. Jesus said, go throughout the world and make disciples, teaching them. Teaching them what? What he has said, what he has done, who he is. Teaching who? Our neighbor. Teaching our kids. You know, to the parents in the room, are you explaining the gospel to your children? Are you telling them who God is and what he has done? Are you explaining what sin is? And what the consequences of sin actually is. Are you telling them why Jesus had to actually die on a cross? That that right there, and just to to let you know, like I I talk with kids a good amount. And and I ask them, and they can actually say, God loves me. Okay, good. And and Jesus died for me. Okay, good. And Jesus went to a cross. He died for me for my sins. Okay, good. And if I follow up with this question, I always get blank stares. Why did Jesus have to die? Or what would happen if Jesus hadn't gone to the cross? It's they still haven't gotten there. And that's part of the gospel. It's explaining that without that, there is this terrible place that we would end up in. That, that it required bloodshed. It required a death because otherwise we would have to pay that for ourselves. So my point is, speak it confidently, but speak it fully. Not just the nice parts, what we consider the positive parts, but also the other parts of it. The reason it's called good news is because by definition, if there's good news, there's also bad news, right? And that's part of the story, that we are sinners and we are sinful and that our sins do demand a wage that we cannot pay when we come before all holy, all-powerful God. So explain the gospel, but, you know, and it's fine to tell our kids or our neighbor or our co-worker, you are a sinner. 
It's okay. So am I. So are all of us. God loves us. This is what he did. If it wasn't for that, we'd be in a mess that we couldn't get ourselves out of. He rescued us. He died on a cross. And now we could be with him forever. Will you now repent and give your life over to him? Speak it with confidence. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, for the Jew and the Gentile. Right? So speak confidently. That is our good deed. And so Paul continues, still in verse 8, speak it, and then he says, so that those who have believed, so that true followers of Jesus will be careful to engage in good deeds. So there's a couple things there that I think are interesting. One is the implication that speaking the gospel isn't simply communicating doctrinal theological truth. Jesus is God. He was born of the Virgin Mary in the incarnation, fully God, fully man. He lived a sinless life, though he was tempted in every way. Went to a cross where he took our sins upon his shoulders. He shed his blood, and it's a propitiatory death, substitutionary death on our behalf. He went to the grave, and three days later, he rose from the dead. He ascended up to heaven, and one day he's coming back. All true, all right, all like perfect. Like, that's really good stuff. But sharing the gospel is so much more than just in that intellectual knowledge it means i believe that so much that i actually follow it like i give my life over to it we we talk about faith in this way faith isn't simply believing it's not just believing in jesus it's believing in jesus to the point that you follow him that you submit yourself to him you entrust your life over to him so that's why it says be careful to do good deeds because it's not about declaring jesus as savior it's about following jesus as lord that's what a true believer is. So when we communicate the gospel with confidence and boldness, it's not just this truth, which is important and right and good and necessary. It's also, now, do you believe that? Yes. Then you must, by consequence, do this. Saving faith must be followed by fruit, by Christian fruit. If your belief in the gospel is real, it has to be followed up and accompanied by behavior that is in keeping with the gospel. I was going to say something, but I'm not going to take that from Brent because he's preaching next week. I'll move on. So anyway, so those who have believed must be careful to engage in good deeds. Here's the other, the other implication in the text is that it is possible for us to neglect the good deeds, right? Be careful to engage in it. The implication is that we can actually begin living life with no good deeds in our lives. So we must be careful to engage in that kind of life. Why? Why? Why is it so important for us to live a life of good deeds? Why should we be careful to devote ourselves to these things? Unless we can even back up a little bit. What, what are good deeds at the end of the day? Like, what are we calling good deeds? Is it helping the old lady across the street? Is that the good deed? Is it a couple of bucks in an offering basket? I mean, like, what, what are we talking about when we, when we talk about good deeds? And then it says in verse 8 that these good deeds are profitable. Well, profitable to who? For who? Who gets the profit? Like, if I'm doing all the investing with my life, like, who is it that makes out? Is it me? Is it, I mean, who is it? 
And so I want to unpack kind of some of those ideas and those notions, uh, that, that, those questions that I just raised. First of all, let's start off with what are good deeds? And, and we started the sermon series this way, by defining good deeds as God deeds. God deeds. Deeds that we perform, but it's really by God, for God, to God, on the behalf of God, and because of God. Good deeds are deeds that are done by God in us and through us. So we don't get the credit. God does it, right? It is God who's at work in us, both to work in the will for his good pleasure. It is God who is bringing the work that he began in us to completion. So a good deed is only a good deed if it is done by the hand of God in us and through us. Because if it's just me doing it, it's not a good deed. The Bible actually says that all our works are but filthy rags. So it's God that's doing it. It's not me that's doing it. And it's for God. So it's for his honor, for his glory. It's not for my selfish ambition. It's not so that look at me, look at what I get out of it. It's not out of selfish interest. It's not out of fear of man or praise of man, that kind of stuff. It's for God. It's for his glory. And it's to God. It's a deed that's done to God. So that when we give to the, the, the hungry person on, on the side of the road, in essence, we're not so much giving it to that individual as much as we're giving it to God. It is done unto him, toward him. Like Jesus said, in as much as you've done this, that, or the other to these people, you have done it to me. So a good deed is a God deed. It's done by God, for God. It's done to God. And then the fourth one is that it's done on God's behalf. So we recognize that we are simply the servants of God, his representatives on earth, with his hands and his feet. So we do this as the instruments of God, right? We're not doing it for us. We're doing it for him on his behalf. And the last one I mentioned is because of God, that we do it because he first loved us. We, the, what makes a good deed good is that it arises from belief in Jesus. It arises from having received the grace of God. So we are inspired, motivated, compelled then to these good deeds, to these good deeds. Now, what does that look like? What, when I wake up tomorrow, what, what are some of these good deeds? I kind of sort of get that, but we, you know, we, it's nicer to kind of paint a little bit easier picture to follow. So let's just back up in chapter 3, in Titus 3. And kind of, like, it gives us a few examples of what some good deeds are. In verse 1, Paul is writing. He's telling Titus, remind them. So remind the church, remind fellow followers of Jesus to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for what? Every good deed. And so right there, one good deed is be a good citizen. Be a good citizen. Like, be obedient to the laws of our nation so long as those laws do not move us to violate God's law. Okay? But it's being a good citizen, paying our taxes, minding the speed limit, stopping at the stop sign, right? And it's being obedient to the law, and, and specifically, it really says subject yourselves to the rulers and the authorities. Submit yourself to those who have positions of authority our president, our mayor, the police chief. These are people that God has installed, that God has installed the government in much of what God does in this world. Much of God's will for the world is fulfilled specifically and directly 
through these governments and authorities that God has established. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So there is a responsibility on followers of Jesus to be respectful of the authorities that have been established over us. Our boss at work, the principal at school, the dean at the college, our mayor, our police chief, on on up the road. Be in subject to them. Again, so long as those rules and laws and regulations and policies do not compel us to violate the law of God. And what's really hard, and, and a lot of Christians don't understand, is like this also includes submitting ourselves to rulers and authorities in this world who are not godly and may not be believers. And guess what? God uses them just as much. The heart of the king is in God's hands. Right? God works in mysterious, overwhelming ways through government. One example in scripture is Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, a non-believer, what we would consider a heathen pagan, did not believe in God. And actually says at the end of Second Chronicles that God put it in his heart to let Israel, the Jewish people, return because they've been removed, they've been deported out of their country to go back home and to build the house of the Lord. So we submit ourselves even to those who may not be of the same creed as us. But this is part of our good deed in this world. Be a good citizen. Uh, another example, uh, King Saul, who was at the very least just simply ungodly, right? Like just rebellious toward God. And at some point, God appoints David to be king of Israel. And guess what? Even David submitted himself to Saul after he had been anointed king. And he submitted to him. And he did not take the reins of his kingship until after Saul had passed. A guy that was trying to kill him, chased him and persecuted him, and still David submitted himself to this individual. So God works through all sorts of government, and so our good deed is to submit and be respectful. And that's part of it. Like, you know, I, I always pick on Facebook. I'm, at the end of the day, I'm not the, the world's greatest Facebook hater. I'm on it. I post pictures of babies and stuff, and that's all well and good. You know, I use it more for church purposes. Hey, we have this going on. But anyway, there are a few things on Facebook that absolutely just drive me insane. And most of it is how Christians act on Facebook, quite honestly. Uh, Because especially now, we're all in the political season. And I see so much hatred being spewed by Christians toward politicians and elected officials. And folks, that is beneath, that is unbecoming of a follower of Jesus to do personal attacks over those who are appointed ahead of us. We may disagree with a policy. It's okay to voice your disagreement on the policy. You can argue all you want against that policy, and you fight for it. We, we're Americans, right? We have a constitution, right? We can actually affect change. Praise God that we have that luxury and that convenience here in the U.S., but we do so in a manner that is civil, respectfully, that, that, that draws people to Christ as opposed to uh, point people away from grace. And one good example is that uh, Westboro Baptist Church. Like, 
you think you think they represented all Christians as loud as they are in the world, and it's nothing but venom. Even if what they're saying is correct, the way they're going about it does damage to the gospel. And mark my words, much of the persecution that is going to come to Christians that has already started, and it started a while back, has been spurred on and sped up by groups like that. We will lose our taxes and status because of, dare I say, can I be Trump for the moment? Stupid people like that in the world. To quote a politician now, investor as he calls himself. So watch how you conduct yourself. Argue the policy. Be thoughtful, but not personal attacks. You know, and instead of, of doing that, Scripture actually tells us to pray for those who are placed over us. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul, again, he's writing, that time, this time to Timothy, and he says, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So right there, instead of being disrespectful and disobedient and, and maligning these officials that God himself has placed over those Respect them, not only respect them, but pray for them. And that good deed, folks, is profitable. The verse right there tells us it's profitable so that you may lead a tranquil and quiet life. That it may go well with you. you pray for them that you may have favor in their eyes. Pray so that they won't get in your way of living your life and be an obstacle to the, go to the gospel. So that's a good deed. Mind your actions and your tone and your behavior toward those over. Pray for him. Pray for a president, whether he's a Democrat or a Republican or a Libertarian or something else. Pray. Pray for our mayor. Pray for our governors. Pray for our police. Pray for all of those around us that have these, this authority given to them. It's for our good. It's for our good. Render unto Caesar what is renders. Be, pay your taxes. All right. What's another example of a good deed? Verse 2. Malign no one. Be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That's, a good, that's the good deed. Be loving and be gracious. Like, instead of being malicious, be nice. Be nice. Instead of being quarrelsome, be courteous, be patient, be gentle, be kind, be merciful, extend grace, be forgiving toward people who hurt you, who harm you. You know, that there's nothing profitable about holding grudges. Being spiteful and plotting revenge, there's nothing profitable there's nothing good it does no one any good to live that way like in, in fact i would say that it does more harm than good and it doesn't only harm the person that we're holding the grudge against it harms us just as much it it damages our own heart when we hold on to resentment and forgiveness is not only about freeing the person who's caused us harm it's about us being free ourselves that we're no longer playing the victim card because we belong to the victor, 
right? We, we don't longer have to hold a grudge against someone else because Jesus died, gave his life for us, and has set us free. So the good deed is be loving, be merciful, be gentle, be gracious toward others. Why? And like I just said, it's because of what God said. So look at verses 3 through 7. This is why we are to be peaceable and considerate and thoughtful to other people. Verses 3 through 7. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But, but, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life and I, if you are in fact a follower of Jesus I want you to consider for the moment just how deep God's love is for us we were fools foolish agents of mayhem chaos rebellious against God holding this animosity toward God disobedient, just running from him. And it's not just like a neglect of God, but there was a, an open hostility in our hearts toward God and the things of God, toward his truth and toward even his grace. And it says we're, we were foolish at one point, disobedient. We were deceived. We were enslaved, imprisoned, shackled by lust and pride by malice in all of this, enslaved, imprisoned by, by our own selfishness, self-absorbed, addicted to all sorts of things, pornography and alcohol, everything, all the things of the world, just simply pursuing earthly desires, sinful cravings, only things that lead to darkness and destruction that hurt us and harm us and hurt others and harm others. Everything that is in complete opposition and violation to the very good nature and character of God, that was us, and we were gorging upon that. Feeding, feasting, feasting on things that don't satisfy, on things that bring no pleasure, and if it does, it's but for the moment, and the next moment, there's just guilt and shame imprisoned and shackled by that. And then if anyone ever got in the way of us trying to get or having what it is that we wanted, hatred just would spew. Nothing but hatred toward the person and more than likely and most of all toward God himself. And there we were and there was nothing we could do about it. We could not loose ourselves from it our own sin so our own hearts was guiding us taking us by the hand and leading us off the cliff this prison of sin that we were in was simply a holding cell for a much worse and greater prison on the other side of the grave nothing we could do 
no supposed self-righteousness, no supposed good deeds, no work, nothing could undo our sin, our trespasses, our transgressions. Before all holy, all powerful, almighty God. But, best word in the Bible, but the loving kindness of God appeared. The steadfast love of God manifested itself. God showed his mercy. And he made his care and his compassion for us loud and clear. What we see in these verses is the totality of the Godhead doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. God, the Father in love, poured out. He poured out his love by sending his Son, Jesus Christ, from heaven to earth. And Jesus himself, the Son of God, God the Son, he poured himself out on the cross. He, he took our sin upon his shoulders to pay the cost. And so he poured out his blood, his lifeblood, that we may be pardoned, that we may be rescued to atone for our sins because God cannot tolerate sin. He cannot abide in sin. He cannot excuse sin. God cannot sweep sin under the rug and, and dismiss it and neglect it and ignore it. His holy nature will not allow for that to happen. So Jesus says, I'm willing to do what is needed to happen that people may be saved. And so Jesus poured himself out on a cross. And it's through that that justice, the justice of God was extracted. The justice of God that was demanded was extracted so that the holiness of God would be fulfilled and satisfied. And then it says that it's the Holy Spirit that is poured out on us. So the Holy Spirit comes upon us and washes us clean cleanses us of the immorality and the unrighteousness and the godlessness, cleans us, like wipes the slate clean. So there's no more guilt, no more shame. So much so that we are justified is the word that is used in the text. We are justified, which means we are declared innocent in the eyes of God. Imagine that. You know yourself. You know what you're capable of. You know what you've done. You know all your thoughts and your deeds and your works and your, your tone, your attitude, and you know the wickedness that is very much alive in your heart. And God, if your faith is in Christ, looks at you and says, I see none of that. I see none of that. I see the righteousness of my son on you. You've been wiped clean by my spirit. Come here. Come here, child. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's grace, and the good news is that it's available to anyone and everyone that would have it. You know, this gospel is the great good deed of Jesus, right? It's the great good deed of God on our behalf, and anyone who embraces that is forgiven of every single sin, past, present, and future. So the question that everyone has to wrestle with and be sure of, have you received the love of God? Have you experienced his grace? Have you 
Come to the cross of Christ. Ask for forgiveness and repent it. Again, it's not simply, I, Jesus loves me and he died for me and yay, Jesus is my Savior. No, I've repented from a lifestyle. That's why Paul says here, for we once were this, but now we're something else because we have repented. Not that some sin doesn't still exist on some level in some ways. But has there been a turning and a repenting and a constant returning and repenting to God? Has there been a full embracing of the gospel? Do you know that you have been forgiven? Do you live with the hope that comes from having embraced grace? Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you still in the prison or have you been set free? And for, for those of us in the room who are in fact followers of Jesus, so we've, we've, held, we've grabbed on to Christ, right? We're, we're holding on to the robe of Jesus, Right? We've, we haven't just reached out to touch it like the lady did in the gospel. Right? We're holding on for dear life. Right? We've put our faith in Jesus, even if it means him dragging us on a cobblestone street, like down the pavement. Right? We're holding on. Our faith is in him. For those of us that that is true of, how do we respond? What do we do after faith, that initial moment of saving faith? What do we do? How do we live? Engage in good deeds. Be careful to engage in good deeds again back to verse 8 be careful to engage in those good deeds why because they are profitable and who are they profitable for the text tells us for all men right well all men there means all people and obviously that includes us individually so I would put it this way. Good deeds are profitable for who? For me, for those around me, and ultimately for God. And for God. How, how does a life of good deeds, like how is that profitable for me? Well, the first thing is that a life of good deeds actually helps to give me assurance that my faith in Jesus is real. A life of good deeds actually helps me to have a certain level of confidence that my faith in Christ is real. There's a... a, a quote by J.I. Packer, a, a theologian, goes like this, only a life of present convertedness can justify confidence that a person was converted at some point in their past. What he's saying is, it's only as I live a life of convertedness that I have in fact converted to Christianity. My faith is in Jesus. I've given my life over to him, right? I've had that moment of initial faith. And the reason I know that moment of initial faith was real is because there's evidence and proof in my life that that was real. Gospel belief must be followed by gospel behavior. So as I truly live a life of good deeds, and again, not just nice things that we do, but God deeds, the deeds that are done by God, for God, to God, on behalf of God, because of God, those real, true, biblical good deeds, as I live that out, I have a level of confidence then that my faith is in fact real. I've torn both ACLs in both knees. I've had both of them surgically repaired. How do I know that the repair worked? Because I can go out and run, jump, cut, move laterally, kick soccer balls, do whatever without my knee buckling and coming out. 
It is through physical exertion that I know that my needs have been repaired. It's the same thing spiritually. How do I know that my heart has been repaired by Jesus and the gospel? It is through my spiritual exertion. It is as, as I exert myself spiritually engaging in profitable good deeds that I'm like, wow, my heart has been changed by God and continues to be transformed by grace. So it's profitable for us because it gives us a level of confidence. It's also profitable for us, folks, because here's, this is, you know, it sprinkles on top. What makes an ice cream sundae good isn't the sprinkles on top, but it's nice, right? Well, there are sprinkles on top when it comes to the gospel, and it's this. Like, we're going to be with Jesus forever. That's like the ice cream sundae. But there's like a sprinkle on top, and it's we get rewarded for our good deeds. It actually tells in the scripture that we get crowns. So it's not the crowns that are the, the, the Sunday, right? But it's nice. And so God promises in, in uh, Psalm 19, for instance, that obeying God's word will come with a great reward. And in 1 Corinthians 3.14, I believe it is, that our good deeds, our works, or how we live, what we do, will be met with a reward from God himself. So when we get to heaven, here, here's what will happen, and there will be no greater moment. Well done, good and faithful servant. I tell you, that's all I want to hear. Jesus, you keep the crowns because they all belong to you anyway, right? I just want to hear Jesus say, well done, good job. And, and for, for that to happen, we have to start looking at our life as currency. Look at every part of your life as a form of currency. Your time is currency. Your gifts, your talents are currency. Your treasure, your finances are currency. Everything about you and everything that you have is a form of currency. And the, the challenge for us or the question for us is how are we going to then employ this currency that we have? Are we going to spend it? waste it on things of the world and selfish things and things that don't matter or are we going to invest it in the things that matter and the things that are eternal and that last forever you know, jesus himself in matthew chapter 6 verse 19 and 20 do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So use your life and everything about your life is currency. And it's currency. You're investing your time in the gospel. You're investing your money in the kingdom. You're investing your talents in, in the mission of God. I promise you this. If you're a follower of Jesus, and this past week, like because we went and helped out at Andrew Elementary School, some of you did, volunteered an hour or two or more, I promise you that the very moment that you step into heaven, you will not miss that hour one bit. If you gave $10, $100, $1,000 this week to support the gospel, I promise you that the moment you see Jesus, you wish you would have given more. How are you using the currency of your life? Your time. Are you serving? Are you giving? Are you generous? Are you loving? Are you working for the gospel? Are you working for the things that actually matter? Are you storing treasure in heaven where God will reward? Where we will sit at his banquet one day forever and ever? Or is, or is your life being consumed and devoured by things of the world that perish and don't matter and don't last and more than likely cause harm and, and hurt? 
So, leading a life of good deeds is profitable to us. It gives us a sense of eternal assurance. We'll have rewards in heaven, sprinkles in heaven. It's also profitable for other people and for, for God. So, Jesus in Matthew 5. Verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So why do we do these good deeds, these profitable good deeds, that other people may be drawn to the Lord? That other people may see how we live in our giving and our generosity and our love and our good citizenship, etc., and be drawn to Jesus. And the more and more people are drawn to Christ, the more God receives glory. You know that every time someone is saved, an angel gets its wings. It actually tells us in Scripture that every, every time someone gets saved, the angels rejoice. And they're, they're giving God credit, praise. Folks, this is our good deed. Like, do you understand that this is why Anthem Church is here? Like, why a year and a half ago we started Sunday morning services in Andrew? That we're here because of the gospel and for the gospel. We're here for the glory of God. We're here to, to reach our neighbors. We're here to be a blessing in town, to, to help out the schools and to help out at the, at the food pantry, to, to help out with Crate Myrtle Festival. We're here to connect with our neighbors, to be loving. Like, we have responded to God's love, so our mission is really to help other peoples to respond to God's love. That's what, we're, we're church planters. We're gospel planters. It's what we are. We're here to fill Andrew in the world with love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus. That is why we are here. And it is profitable. How profitable is this work that we're doing if one person comes to faith? Wow. Man, how profitable is that to God to receive more glory, if it's even possible? So we're to be characterized by a life of good deeds. We're to engage and be devoted to good deeds. We do so because we've received grace. We've received the gospel in a real way. And to stay focused on good deeds, we must stay focused on the gospel. The biggest enemy of good deeds is bad doctrine. Like the biggest enemy of gospel behavior is gospel error. And that's why Paul says what he says in verses 9 through 11. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man, a divisive person, after a first and a second warning. In those verses, Paul is talking about something he's already discussed earlier in the letter. There are false teachers in the church spewing a lot of falsehoods, incorrect teachings. Like they're adding to the gospel, they're amending the gospel, they're redacting it, they're changing it and distorting it. And Paul says, avoid it. Avoid it. Just stay away from it. Don't flirt with it. Don't mess with it. Because if you do, it actually leads to something that is unprofitable. And, and it's really talking about arguing with a false teacher. It says to reject them, which sounds really harsh to our ears. 
But it's not talking about rejecting a non-believer. It's talking about rejecting someone who knowingly, intentionally is teaching something in opposition to what God has taught and is causing division within the church. So he says, reject them or dismiss them from the church. Really, this is talking about church discipline. And folks, church discipline is a good deed. Most churches don't practice it because it is a gut-wrenching, awful thing to go through. It's a good deed because it is for the good of that person. You know, that the point of rejecting them is that they would come to repentance. It's so that they would be one, that through the severity of that, they would see the error of their ways. And it's a good deed because it protects the health of the church. And it's a good deed because it's for the glory of God. It's a good deed. To close up, I just want to point out in chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus is the great all-time investor. In verse 14 of chapter 2, it says that it's Jesus who sacrificed himself, and he gave of the currency of his own lifeblood to invest in what he considers to be a valuable possession, and that, folks, is us. And just imagine that Jesus did, in fact, go to a cross to win you, right? Like, he shed his blood to yield a return that you would be with him forever and ever. He went to the cross. He paid that price. He died, and then he was resurrected from the dead so that we may be with him forever and ever. And he sees us as his royal diadem. He sees us as a treasured possession. And if you are that, if you've accepted Christ, if you are Jesus' treasured possession because of his great good deed, then what should you do? How should you live? Engage in good deeds. Be a good citizen. Pay your taxes. Obey the laws. Be respectful to the elected officials. Pray for them. Be loving, be kind, be merciful, be gentle, be thoughtful. Help people, be a blessing to your neighbor. Go out of your way for folks. Teach your children the gospel. Explain to them the mysteries of Jesus. Shine the light of God in your workplace. Represent Jesus wherever you are, at work, at play, at school, at home, in your neighborhood. Live a life of good deeds. And if you do so, you will profit. You'll be assured of your faith. You'll be rewarded. You'll get sprinkles in heaven. People around you may get drawn to grace, and God will receive glory. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes and let's just take a moment to reflect and to respond. How do you need to respond to, the, to what you've heard this morning, to the word of God? Have you in fact received God's grace? Do you know that you have been forgiven? Are you in fact saved? If not, you can take care of business right now where you sit. Just ask God to forgive you. And with your heart, just reach out to the cross. Turn away from 
that bondage of sin, whatever your strongholds may be, those strongholds in your life, repent of that, and now just trust in Christ and give your life over to Him. If that's a decision you've made in the past, let me ask you, are you living a life of good deeds? Is your life characterized by an engagement in the things that God has called you to do? Are you advancing the mission of God? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you speaking it with confidence? Are you discipling your children? Just take the next few seconds just quietly and just come before the Lord and respond how you need. Father, we give you praise this morning. We thank you for grace and we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word and for your truth and for this opportunity for all of us to know you and to know you well and to be close to you. Lord, to experience love upon love and, and your mercy each and every day. Lord, not just a one-time thing in the past, but it says that your mercies are new each and every day, Lord, and you invite us to experience those riches in our life. Lord, that it, we can have your wisdom and your strength, your power, your presence manifested in us and through us each and every day, Lord. We don't need to settle for the things of this world that only lead to loss, but we can experience a profitable life that yields good fruit, that is right and that it is good and that arises because we have met you. Lord, we thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name. Amen.